Amen, amen. Stay standing uh, as we read God's word together from uh, Matthew chapter 12, uh, verses 22 through 37. If you're using one of those Bibles uh, that we've provided for you in the seat in front of you, that's on page 817. Um, And so we, again, highly encourage you uh, to follow along uh, because it is not my word, uh, it is God's word. Um, It's God's word that we we trust and that we follow. So really encourage you to uh, have something whether you open it up or turn it on uh, to, to follow along in God's word together in Matthew 12, verses 22 through 37. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. All the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will this kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or somehow, or how can someone enter the strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather With me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart of the the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Heavenly Father, thank you for your message in the word and delivering the Holy Spirit to us Mm -hmm. so that we can learn from you and be influenced, our hearts can be influenced uh, through the Holy Spirit to hear you. Give us the uh, ability to hear your promptings, lead us to follow them, and bless us in, in, and our families in every endeavor. Thank you, Lord. In the name of Jesus, amen. 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 You may have a seat. Thank you, Mike. Uh, Oklahoma State, uh, I talked to, talked to Mike this morning. Oklahoma State pulled out the win yesterday. So, uh, you Oklahoma State fans, good job. Um, here we are uh, in Matthew chapter 12, and uh, I think an important refrain for us to catch 
and hold on to as we read and study through this book, through Matthew's gospel, um, is the refrain of continual claims on who Christ is. Um, And so let me just kind of fly you through real quick. Kevin gave us a summary a few weeks ago of the book of Matthew, but I want to just highlight um, all of the characters and all of the people that Matthew's gospel highlights um, who acknowledge who Christ is. And so the book opens... Matthew opens in verse 1 with a claim by the author himself, saying, this is the son of David, the son of Abraham. We then see an angel come. So we got the author. Now we got the angel. We see an angel show up, um, and an angel claims to Joseph that Jesus is coming and that he's the Savior, that he will save his people from his sins. So we got the author, we got the angel, and then we even see Matthew allude to Isaiah, within the whole first chapter. So Isaiah's speaking in this book, and Isaiah has made a claim before this gospel was ever written uh, that Jesus will come and his name will be Emmanuel. Well, then chapter two opens with a few wise men. Uh, So we got wise men who are claiming um, that this Christ that has appeared is someone pretty significant. Um, They they make the claim um, of his appearance that Jesus is what? The king of the Jews. The wise men say that. Um, we see, we, this is crazy, this gets, this gets more and more troubling for some of us, uh, we then see Herod. We see an evil king Herod acknowledging that something's up with this dude, and it's a baby. <laughs> and Herod sends out this, this decree across the whole world, and so you got, you got this evil, wicked king who wants to murder Jesus, essentially by his actions to kill Jesus, claiming, yeah, this guy's dangerous. Uh, and, then, and then chapter 3 opens with John the Baptist. You've got a modern-day prophet. You've got you've Isaiah, and then you've got John the Baptist opening chapter 3, claiming that he who has come is the anointed one of God. And then we see just this climactic claim in chapter 3 from not any earthly prophet or king, but the Father himself. The Father speaks from heaven. And by the way, the Spirit... It says that that the Spirit descends, and the Spirit is even confirming who this is. So you see all these people saying something about Jesus, right? All these people, well, we're not done yet. Because we even see, this is is wild, we even see Satan in chapter 4 almost rhetorically say, if you are the Son of God. I don't think that's Satan rhetorically saying that. I think Satan knows exactly who Christ is. Satan knows who Jesus is. And so even Satan, I'm not trying to like virtuize Satan here. Please do not hear what I'm saying. I'm just, show, I'm just trying to build up to, to something here. Chapter, chapter 8 opens with three stories of belief in Christ by a leper, by a centurion, and by a woman. Three very strong outcasts in, the, in, the current, in, the, in that society. Christ's disciples in chapter 8 are beginning to really recognize who Jesus is In chapter 9, we see those who are demon-possessed. We see the paralytics. We see the mute and the lame and the blind, all recognizing who Jesus is. However, there's one group of people. There's one group of people who continually refuse to accept who the Christ is. Who's that? The Pharisees. You've got this one group in all of Matthew. Just just remember, Matthew's not just like writing on his own volition. Uh, like, like we said last week, any book we read, there's two authors, in this book at least, right? Two authors. We got a dual authorship here. We got Matthew, and who else? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is guiding Matthew as he writes, and the Holy Spirit wants us to see something significant, that the whole world is astounded by who this 
person who has shown up on the scene is, and yet we get to this one group who over and over and over again refuse to accept who this person is. Now, I'm not saying that everybody that I just uh, mentioned who acknowledged who he is is saved, obviously, uh, but, but Matthew's showing us that some, someone, something has arrived on the scene that's a big deal. And yet the Pharisees, I won't say cannot, maybe they cannot. When we get into chapter 13, we'll see some of the hardness of heart talk, but at least up to this point are unwilling to see and believe who this Christ is. So up to this point, um, as I mentioned last week, we see a Christ who has appeared on the scene who is eager to show grace and compassion and mercy towards the penitent and those who see their need for a creator. But as we will see with clarity today, stinging rebuke is reserved for those who plainly see who Christ is yet refuse to believe. So please just hear that, church. Please hear that as we go out into this world, that Christ is one who invites those who see their need. He is one who invites them to come. He is merciful and compassionate and tender. And if we turn to him, he will receive us. Yet, we see stinging, painful rebuke from Jesus to those who see who Christ is and yet refuse to believe who he is. And so here's, here's the deal, church. The text before us today, these few verses, um, is, are, are one of the most difficult things that Jesus has to say in all the scriptures. It is, it is truly one of the most complex and difficult things that Jesus says in all of his ministry, and it's this. Jesus says that there is one sin that can be committed that is unforgivable. That's, that's kind of harsh, right? That's, kinda, that's a hard thing to accept. But there is one thing that Jesus says um, that, there is, that, that it can be committed that is unforgivable, unfor- and that is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, we see God offer forgiveness for, this is one of the reasons why, why, why this, is, this is so hard is because throughout all the scriptures, we are met time and time again by a God who is eager, um, able, and willing to forgive any kind of sin, no matter how serious or heinous it is. And so that's why this, there's some tension here, because all throughout the scriptures we see a God who is eager, ready, willing, and able to forgive any sin, no matter how heinous. We see God offer forgiveness for idolatry. We see him offer forgiveness for adultery, for murder, for gluttony, for theft, for covenant breaking, for pride, for self-righteousness. We even see God forgiving the most heinous sin imaginable, the murder of his son. The murder of his son. We see Jesus on the cross cry out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Yet, there is a sin identified in this text for us for which Jesus says there is no forgiveness. So notice, though, that this interaction begins with the miracle working power of Jesus, right? Y'all are just like, please just decipher this language of not being forgiven. Please, please help me make sure I haven't done it, right? Uh, that's, that's what everybody wants to know. You just want to know if you've, if you've committed this. Well, we'll get there here in just a moment. But notice uh, that that's not where this text starts. Uh, this text starts with a, a miracle um, and the miracle working power of Jesus in verse 22. Let's read where it says in verse 22, then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and Jesus healed him so that the man spoke and saw. So this verse is critical for us to see. We, we tend to skip 
we tend to skip to what Jesus said about the unforgivable sin, but the text begins with first what Jesus does for, for a work of Christ. And so this miracle, this thing right here, so like imagine like a, I don't know what you call those things, like a, almost like a family tree. Imagine that you're diagramming this, this not like as in a sentence, but just diagramming the sections of this passage. Well, the, the, the top of that chart is the miracle of Christ. And whatever happens after that flows from here. And so what Jesus says is in response to uh, the response of those who are responding to what Jesus does in this miracle. Does that make sense? You confused yet? And so Jesus, I, I'm, I am very... Uh, uh, I'm, I'm very well known for making the simple very complex, and so I'll try to, try to get, get a little bit better at that. Um, and so it's this miracle that prompts this statement by Jesus and his confrontation with the Pharisees, and is, and is this, this miracle is what Jesus uses as an example to show the Pharisees what blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is. And so we're trying to figure out what in the world is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Well, it's at least connected to what Jesus does and how they respond. Um, and beyond that, we'll, we'll, we'll see if we can dig in a little bit. But, but up to this point, Jesus has publicly and plainly healed those who are unable to speak. He has publicly and plainly uh, healed those who are un- unable to see and hear and those who are possessed by demons, right? We've seen accounts of all of those things. But, but here you have the presence of all three in the same person. You see one who is demon-possessed uh, and, and then he, can't, he can't see and he can't, he can't speak, And so it would have been easy to see this guy, and it's easy for us to see this guy and to believe that he is just too far gone. Like, all right, let's see see what what kind of thing Jesus can tackle here. But it'd be easy to say, hey, this guy is just too far gone. He's completely helpless, and he is unable to be delivered. Yet Jesus has brought this man, and in a very public manner, he heals him completely. He heals his demon oppression. He heals his blindness. He heals... His, his muteness. Now, here's why that's important. This, this is really important to catch. Because up to this point, it is Christ's most definitive display of his power and his authority in all of his earthly ministry. Now, I don't know if that's why Jesus was doing this, but I, I do believe that it is very significant that this person is plagued with all three of these things, and it is Jesus' most definitive display of his power over all things, and it is the most clear and definitive display of that. And it also reminds us of what the primary purpose of the miracles that Jesus performed to show us that he is the Son of God. And we see that because of what, how Jesus responds to the Pharisees' response. And so, so definitive this miracle was that it prompts, it, it prompts them to unavoidable and widespread responses of utter amazement and astonishment. So there's two responses. Remember, we got that, the, the, top, the top of that chart, the miracle of Jesus, and then we got two responses. Well, let's read verses 23 and 24 with me, if you would. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. The first of these responses is by who? The crowds, the people. All the, it says all the people. So, so despite what it might look like up front, I, I just want to present to you, and, 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 and here's, the, here's the thing. This is why we all got to do our own digging, our own studying. But, but, but from, from, from what we can see here, 
and what Jesus has done in the past with people who have doubts and questions and who are skeptical about who he is, um, I think it's at least safe to say um, that, that despite what it may look like up front, it, it's believed to be, um, this, is, this is widely believed to be a genuine response of amazement, but one that may be tinged with some doubt. That these crowds are saying, not, not only can this be the son of David, but can this really be him? We, like, we don't know what just happened. We don't know what's going on. Is this, is this really him? And so it may be a response that, as the text says plainly, it is one of amazement, but may also be one that is, isn't quite filled with the amount of certainty that, that we might think that it's filled with. Now, the, the response that this response tinged with doubt is meant to set up, to be a setup as a major contrast with the response of the Pharisees. Now, I would say also it is a way for us to be comforted as people who often have questions and doubts and are sometimes like, God, really? Is, 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 this, is this really? I think, it, I think it really could be set up and served to us as an encouragement because I believe that this response by the crowds is to be set up in contrast with the response of the Pharisees who show, who show that there is, we're going to see this in just a second, there is a level of acceptance and belief in what Christ has done. You see, we're going to see that in just, in just a moment. Yet, these Pharisees completely refuse to believe it. They completely refuse to believe. Now, which of these two, which of these two responses is it that Jesus spends his time responding to? The one of the crowds or the one of the Pharisees? The one of the Pharisees. Now, does, does he respond to to a, a, a response that may be tinged with doubt, or does he respond to the response that is of hardened disbelief, that of hardened disbelief? And this is key for us. So here's the thing. I, I think Matthew's doing some like apologetics work. I think he's doing some defending of the faith, or that we can see um, in Matthew some, some defense of the faith. He's showing those who may still refuse to believe in him today, like today in 2024, He's a, he's a, we at least have from the scriptures here that even those who refuse most ardently to not believe who Christ is, they were not denying what he did. There, there, was, there was no question. So, so if you're a skeptic, if you're an unbeliever, let me just clear something up for you. The, the Bible even tells us that even Jesus' strongest opponents and haters were not saying Jesus didn't do this. The, the context of this passage is they're trying to discredit who Jesus is. They're trying to just say, here's, here's, who, here's, here's by what power Jesus is doing it. Like, that's, that's an admission by, by these men. Yeah, what we're seeing is legit. Yeah, that dude really didn't used to be able to see, and now he can see. Like, we did some kind of test in front of his eyes. Like, how many fingers am I holding up? And he passed it. Like, they, they, were, they were seeing these things play out. Even Jesus' worst critics could not deny that these things were happening. And, show, and so... Jesus shows us this by showing us that the Pharisees, or Matthew really shows us this by showing us that the Pharisees responded. There was a reaction out of the Pharisees um, to this miracle, and the way that they responded is what receives rebuke from Christ. What, what they said that um, in verse 24, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this, that this man cast out demons. Again, they don't deny the miracle. They don't deny the power that Christ has. It's it plainly there in the text. They said, he's doing it. We're just, we're just skeptical by, by what power he's doing it. 
So they, they didn't deny the miracle or the power. They denied and they discredited the person. They denied that Jesus was the Son of God. That, that this was not by the power of God that Jesus did this. And so then Jesus responds in verses 25 through 30. Let's read those few verses together. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Not unintentionally, Matthew puts a cherry on top of all this by recording that Jesus knew their thoughts. Jesus just knew what they were thinking. (laughs) Now, I I don't know what, what all that means, but what I do know is that Jesus knew their thoughts. Jesus knew that they were thinking, he knew they were scheming, and, 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 and so that shows us that not only can only God heal and not only can only God calm the storm, but only God knows the inner workings of man. Only God can read and understand the inner workings in the heart of man, and that's what Jesus proves here. I know the inner workings of your hearts because I am he. I am the one. And so verses 26 and 27, so we see that Jesus is, is powerful and he is one with God, but here's just a real practical thing that, that I love that we talked about on Wednesday morning. Jesus is just more logical than them. He, makes, he kind of makes a logical argument with these people in verses 26 and 27. Jesus simply uses reason to respond to the logic that Jesus is doing this by Satan's power. He, he confirms here, notice what Jesus does. Jesus confirms here that there is a Satan. He confirms that there are demons Jesus confirms that there is most certainly a battle playing out in this world, and he does so by saying that those two kingdoms are at odds and not working against one another, not working against themselves. They're not going to cave in on themselves. There's two kingdoms going on. There's a Satan of there's a there's a, a kingdom of Satan and a kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is not trying to undermine or usurp itself, and the kingdom of Satan is also not doing the same thing. And so Jesus is using plain logic. By, by saying what he says, if Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. Why would Satan do that, Jesus says? He's just kind of just outsmarting them and just kind of using logic to show them, yeah, your, your argument just on a logical level it just doesn't make sense. And so Satan's kingdom is unified in its desire to destroy. Christ's kingdom is unified in its desire to redeem and to restore. And, and Jesus is saying, one kingdom is not trying to do the other kingdom's work. The, the, the two kingdoms that you got, those kingdoms are doing the work that's set out before them that they are both trying to accomplish. And Satan's trying to accomplish what he will, and I'm trying to accomplish what God desires for me to accomplish. And then verses 28 through 30, we're going to read that again. But if, the spirit, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, and the kingdom of God has come upon you, or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus is claiming that the, that the reign of the coming one that was prophesied about in Daniel, that the coming of the reigning one that was prophesied about in Ezekiel and Isaiah 
has begun. And it begins with Christ. That Christ is that reigning king who is prophesied in all the Old Testament prophets. The new covenant begins with Christ, as Hebrews even talks about. Hebrews references Ezekiel and says, Jesus is the one who Ezekiel's talking about in the new covenant. And Jesus is saying that reign begins now and it is here. It may be hard for us to see it now with all of the chaos in the world. But what Jesus says here, I mean, he plainly says it, that the strong man has been bound That Jesus is the one who goes into the strong man's house. He plunders his goods, but he can't do that until he first binds that strong man. And what Jesus is doing by casting out demons and, and watching them run into pigs and those pigs run over the cliffs like we see a few chapters before is Jesus binding the strong man on his own turf and saying, I'm here. I'm here and I am coming and I am reigning. And so all of this, what Jesus has done and what Jesus is claiming about what he has done is what leads Jesus to saying what he does in verses 31 and 32. And we may read that a couple times, but we're going to read, therefore, therefore, surely at some point we'll, we'll stop having to tell you what the therefore is there for, right? Therefore, essentially in response to what he just said, therefore I tell you, Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. And so what we see here is what J.C. Ryle identifies as the way that he defines blasphemy Um, is a combination of clear knowledge and deliberate rejection. Clear knowledge and deliberate rejection of Christ is what we see in the Pharisees. Based on how Christ responds to them, and based on what Jesus tells these Pharisees they are in danger of, that they are in danger of crossing into a point of no return, essentially. Jesus is warning them that that they have a clear knowledge yet deliberately reject who Christ says he is and and consequentially who people all around the ministry of Jesus are seeing that Jesus is. This isn't doubt. This isn't sincerity. Uh, This isn't the uh, questions or sincerity that Jesus is addressing. And so many of you are like, all right, now you're going to tell me if I've done this? (laughs) Because I need to know. I need to make sure I haven't committed the unpardonable sin. Well, Well, we'll get to that more in just a minute. But this isn't questions. This isn't sincerity. This isn't doubt that Jesus is addressing. By the way, remember the Holy, that Holy Spirit authorship of Matthew and Matthew's authorship? Just a chapter before, who do we see doubting? Anybody? John the Baptist. Jesus' own forerunner. The own prophet of God doubting. And, and Jesus just really calmly responds to John the Baptist and says, hey, essentially this is what he says. Hey, listen, the things that the Bible said about the coming one are happening. And he gives John peace. And John is at peace with the way that Jesus responds. And so again, this isn't doubt or sincere questions that Jesus is addressing. It is clear knowledge and deliberate rejection of the Pharisees. It is their seeing the works of Jesus. It is their knowing that this is something only God has the power to do. They know that. 
This is them saying that Jesus is doing the things that God alone has the power to do and the conclusion that they've drawn that Jesus is not doing this by the power of God but by the power of Satan. And so they're, that what they don't realize is that the God that they worship, they're, they're essentially attributing Christ's work to Satan rather than to God. They're, they're, they're responding, I don't know if you want to call it worship, but they're responding in some sort of awe-inspired reaction to these acts and attributing what Christ has done to the power of Satan rather than to the power of God. And Jesus says, I will have none of it. I will not have any of it. And that clear knowledge and deliberate rejection of who Christ is, is what Jesus says has these men on the verge of committing a sin that has them near to the point of no return. That's a hard thing to hear, right? Because you're just like, wait a second. What about the, the mercy and the grace of God? Well, we're going to go with what the text says, and we'll, we'll kind of work from there. These men, these Pharisees, have been enlightened. No, notice if this sounds familiar. These men have been enlightened to the reality of who Christ is. They have tasted the heavenly gift. They have shared in, maybe not received, but they have certainly shared in the Holy Spirit in the work of the Holy Spirit. They have tasted the goodness of the word of God and his power, and they have fallen to a place where the word said, or they are on the verge of falling to a place where the word says it is impossible to repent and to believe in who Christ is. That's Hebrews chapter six. Hey, I, don't, I, don't, I personally, we can talk about this later if you want, I personally don't believe that that text is talking about believers because we are very firm that we believe that if you are a true follower of Christ and a, and a child of his, that nothing can ever change that. You will not be removed from his hand. And so what other place might this be talking about in Hebrews chapter six than what we're seeing in the Pharisees? That they are tasting something, that they are hearing something, that they are experiencing something, that they are, they are witnessing something. They're, they are bystanders of it. In Hebrews chapter 6, go with me there, just so I can kind of back this up with scriptures. And if we've got questions about this, you can come talk to me. This is what Hebrews 6, chapter, uh, chapter 6, verses 4 through 6 say, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. The Son of God stands before these men. The Son of God stands before him, yet they will crucify him. They will put him on the cross. And these men, from what we can see, know exactly what they are doing. I don't think that this is who Jesus is speaking about necessarily when he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Because in the other texts of Matthew, we see these men know exactly who Christ is. And Christ is warning them, if you don't accept who you so plainly see, you will not receive forgiveness. That's a hard place to come back from. It's a hard place to come back from. These men, by their words and actions, they reject and they blaspheme the Holy Spirit by denying his work of showing to them that Jesus is the saving son of God when they have had everything they need before them to believe it. Can I just tell you, church family, if you are a Christian today, it's because the Holy Spirit showed you who Jesus is and you chose to believe it. 
You placed your trust in Christ because the Spirit illuminated to you who Christ is and he revealed him to you primarily through his word, which we're going to talk about some of that in just a second, but through his word, and you deliberately chose to follow Jesus because the Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit is to show you who Christ is. I've heard some people uh, joke and talk about, a lot of people want to talk about the Holy Spirit a lot. Let's make sure that we... Let's make sure that we know the Holy Spirit wants to talk to you about Jesus. The Holy Spirit loves Christ. The Holy Spirit wants to talk to you about Christ. You want to talk about the Holy Spirit in all of these different ways, and that's good. I think there's places in the scriptures where we ought to dig in and see what the Holy Spirit does. But Jesus says himself that the Spirit will come and will comfort and will, and will convict the world according to sin, righteousness, and judgment. And he will show us who Christ is. And so these men, these Pharisees, the Spirit of God is pursuing them. The Spirit of God is showing them great and marvelous and mighty things. And they are rejecting it. And Jesus is confronting that deliberate rejection and their disbelief. So Jesus then goes on to simply give a wise and perfect application for the Pharisees in verses 33 through 37. Let's read this. Either make the tree good... And it's uh, either, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Jesus here stresses the link between the heart and the mouth. That's the, that's the, I think that's the, the main verse in that passage, uh, that uh, from the, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So Jesus stresses this link between the heart and the mouth. He isn't saying that a prayer or words will be what saves us or justifies us. He's not saying that. We are justified through faith in Christ not through something we repeat, not through something we recite or pray or anything like that. We are saved through faith in Christ. However, Jesus does most certainly say that your mouth will be a revelation of what is in your heart, <laughs> even when you stand before God one day. And this is primary, the primary context for this is these Pharisees. What do they say? That they, are, they love God. They love God with all that they have. They say they believe in God, but their mouths blaspheme against the Son of God. And that's how serious Jesus is about what God is showing the world through him. That if you deny me, you deny the Father, and ultimately you deny what the Holy Spirit has come to do in your lives, and that is to talk to your heart about who I am. And so they reject the very thing. They reject the very thing that God said to them. And we see, we see Matthew allude to that in verse 18 of chapter 12, that I will put my spirit upon him. Hey, that's a verse that the Pharisees would have been very familiar with and acquainted with because it was their own prophet. And yet Matthew's saying Jesus is the one whose spirit God has placed himself upon. So I want to close with a comfort and a warning let me close here with a comfort and a warning. Maybe I didn't quite answer all your questions. Maybe you got more questions. That's not my intent. My intent is not to drive you into despair or to drive you into more questions. Some pastors are like, well, that's just my job to make you ask more questions. I don't think so. I think it's to declare what the word of the Lord says. 
and that the Spirit would guide us and help us to comfort and to see what his word says. And so let me close with a comfort and with a warning. The comfort, um, the, the, the application for comfort simply is this. Matthew Henry, he's a, he's a commentator, pastor and theologian, and he says it plainly and helpfully that those who fear they have committed this sin give good sign that they have not. Those who fear that they have committed this sin give a good sign that they most certainly have not. The invitation to those who may not believe but who have doubts and questions and are seeking is to come to Christ. Hey, if you're, if you're just like, man, I just don't know about all this. I got, I got questions. I got doubts. I'm a little bit skeptical. Hey, the, the invitation, hey, man, is come to Jesus. Come to Christ. Place your trust in him. Now, here's, here's a warning. Here's a warning for us. Maybe I should have flipped these, done the warning first, and then the comfort. Isn't that typically... No, sometimes I heard somebody say uh, that one of the pastor's jobs is uh, to uh, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Um, and so maybe this, is, maybe this is a text. This is a heavy text, by the way. That's, that, we agree. Um, sometimes the scriptures just let us leave on a, on, a, on a heavy note, except for the gospel that comes in and makes sure that all of us know what's true. All of it's true. But the warning that I leave you with is, is this. And I think it's something we got to be really careful of. As, as an attempt to comfort, I've heard many say that this sin cannot be committed today. I've just heard a lot of people say that. This is a sin that was just, Jesus was right in front of these Pharisees, and, you know, it was just kind of while Jesus was right there. And, 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 and I'm, I will say at best, um, what, first of all, while I do believe that it is a sin impossible for true Christians to commit, let me say that. It is a sin impossible for true Christians to commit. Remember, if you're afraid that you've committed a sin, you've given a good sign that you haven't. And so while I do believe that it's a sin impossible for true Christians to commit, I'm not sure. I just, I don't know. Maybe somebody in this room, sure. But I'm not sure that we are at liberty to comfort non-believers with the truth that this just can't be committed. Because, let, let, me, give you, let me give you a couple reasons why. Now, it's, it's important first to state and to acknowledge that God alone knows the state of someone's settled heart. God alone knows that. God alone knows if someone is in settled disbelief. We don't. Hey, if you think someone's in settled disbelief, my encouragement to you this morning is to pray for them. Pray for that person. Share the gospel with that person. God alone knows the state of someone's settled or fertile heart. Fertile to the gospel, fertile to receive. But the scriptures indicate for us post-resurrection. In fact, I read one of those passages just a little bit ago, and some of that may depend on how you, how you exactly understand that passage. Uh, but, the, but the scriptures do indicate for us post-resurrection that there are those who have a set and a settled unbelief in who Christ is. We don't know who they are, but Hebrews seems to say they're out there. <laughs> they're there. I don't know them. Lindsay doesn't know them. Rick doesn't know them. God knows them. But there may be those in the world who have a settled unbelief in who Christ is. Hebrews 4, 4 through 6 is one of those. And then Hebrews 10. I've got just three more passages to read. I know we're going, but we're just going to finish this up. Hebrews 10, verses 26 through 27. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now, 
again, if we're just kind of like, man, I just don't know if I can like lose my salvation or not, then maybe that verse is, maybe that verse, you love that verse because you're like, yeah, we can just go off. I, I believe that we, I believe that people can have a knowledge of the truth and deliberately reject that truth. Or else we have to say that these texts are about those who come to a saving knowledge of who Christ is and yet fall away. Now, surely Matthew 13 does say some things that will, that will confront us a little bit. The parable of the sower. There are things that, that come to be that, that, we'll have to, that we'll have to walk through together. But those two passages seem to tell us that, hey, people can, can, can be enlightened. They can taste. They can share in, in, the, in the works of the Holy Spirit and yet not come to a saving knowledge of the truth. And so if the warning continues that if you do not trust Christ today, if you don't trust in Christ today, you are in danger as the Pharisees were of a point of no return. I will tell you that. That if you don't trust Christ, you are in danger as the Pharisees were of a point of no return, but rather only a cosmic judgment that will come upon you because we will all stand before God one day. Every person in this room and in this world will stand before Jesus, who will judge. And Hebrews 10 says that, that the only thing that those have who have come to a knowledge but don't receive it only have a judgment to look forward to. And so what, is, what does that mean for us? So it's like, well, how, how do I, well, this brings us back to a great and deep confidence in the inspiration of the scriptures. This brings us back to this because the scriptures say of themselves that they are God's testimony and definitive word to you about who Christ is. Peter says in 2 Peter, this is, the, this is where I wanted to, to take you, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse, verse, uh, 2 Peter chapter, chapter 2, verses 16, uh, chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. Look what this says. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard the voice from heaven, for we were with him on that mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That is a beautiful text about the scriptures and a terrifying text for those of us who want to just say, yeah, there's no way for us to fully know. Because what Peter's saying is we were with Jesus on the mountain. We heard the voice of God. We were, we were eyewitnesses to that majesty. And what Peter's saying is, you've got a more sure word in this. He's pointing to the scriptures. And he's saying, you're in a better place today reading the whole counsel of God than we were when we were even on that mountain. You can be more sure from this word than we were on that mountain. And so when you reject Christ, you are rejecting what the Holy Spirit has taught us through this word. 
And it is this word that attests to, it is this word um, that is God's word and the Spirit's word to us about the Savior. Can I just tell you, you don't need to see Jesus perform miracles to accept who he is. You need to believe and to trust God's word about who Christ is. And that's what the word tells us. And so those who die without a belief in who Christ is, especially those who have heard the word of truth, Jesus is gonna go on and say some crazy things to the Pharisees. He's gonna say, hey, you know what? On the day of judgment, Nineveh and Sodom and Gomorrah are gonna be in better shape than you are because you've seen Christ and yet you rejected him. They didn't see that and yet they repented. And those who didn't, didn't see Christ. And you're gonna know on that day of judgment, man, I wish I would've got that right. And so that is, that's, the, that's the comfort and the warning for us today. And I just wanna end on the comfort to those of you who are followers of Jesus. Man, praise God for his grace to us in Christ, amen? That by his spirit, he awakened your heart to the beauty and the realities of the truth and by his grace enabled you to choose to follow him. Man, what a, what a beautiful reality and how, comf- how much comfort and assurance and security we have through faith in Christ and what he has done for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for even the, the hard parts of your word that, that serve for, for some a warning, that, some, that serve for some um, maybe an affliction, but serve for others a great comfort. And so, Lord, I pray this morning... Um, that those who have trusted in you will have great comfort in the fact of the Holy Spirit's work in their lives and in their hearts to enable them to say yes to you. And Lord, we pray that any who may not have placed their trust in you, Lord, that the word has been clearly proclaimed this morning. The gospel has been clearly proclaimed and And they may be trying to avoid that, but the gospel has now fallen on their ears and a failure to trust in that is, has them on the edge of a decision that may change the trajectory of their entire lives and eternity. And so Lord, again, by your spirit, would you draw men and women to yourself? Lord, thank you that we don't know, that we are, thank you that we are not all powerful and that we don't know who has a settled heart or who those are, but only you know. And what you have told us is to share your truth and your gospel with everyone so that many may come to faith in you and may be saved and may spend an eternity with you. We love you, Father. Uh, We praise you for your grace. We come to the table now in response Um, to to the fact that we are empty-handed, yet you have completely filled us by your grace and your salvation through your son, Jesus. And we pray these things in Christ's name, amen.